we were younger women of color. We were both starting families. So we couldn't perform this role in, in the way that society expected of us. And if we can redefine what it means to be a leader, then all of a sudden leadership becomes possible for a lot more people. Welcome to the Be Change podcast. We're your hosts, Warren Goldstein-Gelb and Marcy Goldstein-Gelb. This podcast is for leaders and emerging leaders who care about social change and about how to make a great difference in the world. The podcast explores strategies, tools, and stories to help you strengthen your social change and nonprofit leadership skills. So Warren, our guest today is Shireen Alamzada, and she is co-founder of Healing to Action, which works on combating sexual violence through worker-led strategies and really focusing on low-wage workers. And she co-founded it and is co-director with Carla Altmeyer. And I wanted to highlight that because one of the things that really is interesting about the organization that we want to talk about today is can you and how you share power and share leadership in an organization, both as co-directors, but as well as having the people that are impacted actively involved as leaders and sharing the work and the direction of the organization. Yeah, what's interesting to me about this is that people who have been impacted by sexual violence are actually assuming leadership roles in the organization. And so they're getting a chance to see beyond the individual impacts of the trauma they've experienced to making changes in the community that reflect their collective power. And that's an unusual transition and transformation. This uh, sort of trauma-informed leadership is very powerful. Shireen, thank you so much for joining us on the Be Change podcast today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Now you're over in Chicago and you're co-founder and co-director of Healing to Action, which is a nonprofit organization that focuses on survivor-led strategies to combat sexual violence. And you also co-founded the Coalition Against Workplace Sexual Violence, which brings together rape crisis agencies, civil rights organizations, worker centers, and government agencies. Tell us a little bit about what that means to uh, engage survivors in organizing as leaders? Sure, yes. So a little bit of background. Before I, we, I co-founded Healing to Action with Carla, I was an attorney representing survivors of gender-based violence in the legal system. And so one of the first cases that I saw was with Carla. A worker came to us. Um, she was a factory worker. She came straight from work. So she still had some like factory grease kind of like on, on her arms and on her fingers. And she was a single mother of um, three kids. She was undocumented. She was a monolingual Spanish speaker. And um, her, her supervisor had been sexually violating her for years. You know, he had been raping her, um, had been forcing her to have sex in order to keep her job, had been threatening her with physical harm if she told anybody. And so she was, you know, extremely traumatized. And what we talked with her about her legal options, of which there were many, because she had a very compelling legal case. And she ended up 
deciding at that time that she couldn't go forward with the case. And she explained that she didn't want her daughters to find out what she had done. So she was very uh, adamant that she blamed herself. She felt like she had made poor choices. And it really spoke to us in that moment that it didn't really matter if we had extensive, you know, legal, a legal network of support or social workers or counselors, all of things which we were offering. If, if this worker didn't have a community that was organized, you know, to support her in her day-to-day life, if she wasn't living in a culture where she could understand or accept that this wasn't her fault, that this was not something that she had done, none of those things would really be sufficient to help her to, to seek justice and to seek healing in her life. And so that's really why we decided to um, form Healing to Action to create that community of support that was missing. And skipping forward a little bit with this particular leader, she actually did end up um, coming forward eventually after she realized that there were other co-workers in the factory that she was working at that were having similar experiences. And so they were able to come forward together and that was what she needed in order to feel safe coming forward. So that's one example, but Healing to Action is working to you know, create the conditions where this can happen to workers in all different industries um, in all different communities across Chicago. So with our leadership program, you know, we had workers coming together from different neighborhoods across the city for this cohort. They felt like they all had this common experience of being violated in the workplace or um, being in an abusive relationship and that they were learning these concepts like consent or what is a healthy relationship now, later in life. And they really wanted to focus on how they could ensure that their children and youth in their communities um, learn that concept before these things happened. And so that's what they're working on now is developing a campaign to address racial and economic disparities in the way that sex education and consent education are being delivered in Chicago public schools. So that's an example of a campaign or an initiative that these survivors have come up with to try to address the root causes of this issue in their lives. Yeah. This podcast really focuses on people like yourself that have your own journey that led to you becoming a leader in a nonprofit social justice organization. And so I wanted to take a step back and to understand what got you to this point. Sure. So I uh, grew up uh, in Virginia, uh, close to Washington, D.C. I grew up in um, an immigrant family. My my parents both immigrated to the United States from Iran when they were young adults. And my whole family kind of immigrated to the U.S. in the pattern of chain migration. That's very common. And so I was coming of age. I was a teenager when 9-11 happened and, you know, in college when the Iraq war happened. So there was a lot of xenophobia growing up, a lot of racism that uh, I experienced and certainly a lot of um, racism that my family experienced even earlier than that when they immigrated. And so one of the things that I, I noticed in my own family was this really strong desire to be 
accepted and sometimes to hide the parts of our lives that were painful or that we were worried would, you know, affect our reputation. Um, and obviously, one of those things was gender-based violence. And so that was kind of a pattern that I saw from a very early age and something that I became really interested in throughout the course of my career is why people stay silent when these things happen. What are some of the different conditions that make people feel like they they can't speak up, that they can't share, that there's too much shame. And of course, I think being an immigrant or being from a community of color are, are some of those factors. And then of course, other ones like poverty or economic insecurity are, are others. And so that's really what motivated me to start working on the issue of gender-based violence. I started working on it in immigrant communities like right after college. I went to law school, um, continued to work on that issue, um, and really have been working on it ever since. You know, you, you mentioned that um, after college, you pursued law school, and it sounds like you're, you were thinking that taking legal action on behalf of and with uh, survivors would be a way to have a really important impact. Uh, did you envision yourself at some point being a, a leader of a nonprofit organization? That's a good question. I, I don't know if I had that goal. You know, I think initially my goal was to really represent survivors, to be an attorney who was bringing these lawsuits and holding companies accountable. And so in a lot of ways, I came into this, what I had envisioned as this dream job. But I think what I, I saw pretty pretty quickly was that the law was a really imperfect, ineffective tool in certain situations. And it happened to be in the situations that I was the most passionate about, where people were the most vulnerable, where people were the most likely to um, feel like they couldn't come forward. Um, I, I also did represent some survivors who you know, did go through the litigation process. And I also saw in, a lot of times that was incredibly traumatizing and didn't really help them feel like, you know, that they had received justice. So um, I think that the nonprofit Healing to Action really grew out of the realities of the conditions that I was seeing in my work and, um, and, and recognizing there weren't really any organizations that were addressing those specific challenges. You mentioned uh, Carla. Did you did you come together with her and say, let's make a plan or tell us about the very beginning of creating this new organization? Sure. Yes. Um, so Carla Altmeyer is my co-founder and co-director. And I met Carla when I was representing survivors and I was actually giving a presentation at a rape crisis center and she was attending that presentation. She was going to be graduating from law school that year and starting as a attorney representing survivors as well. So we, you know, she came up to me after the presentation and we immediately started to talk and, you know, just share stories about work that we were doing. And it was around that time, it was in, I think, 2012 that we, um, along with some other allies and partners in Chicago started the Coalition Against Workplace Sexual Violence. So that predated Healing to Action. And the goal of that coalition was really to just bridge this gap between the labor movement and the movement to gender-based violence and to start to create strategies that were responsive to the realities of, of low-wage workers. You know, we worked together over the course of um, a few years and um, eventually the work was just outgrowing the, the structure of the coalition. There was just so much happening 
happening. There were so many requests for support from the coalition. And we also recognized that we had the potential to have an even broader impact. We spent about a year talking with our partners to figure out what would make the most sense. And they and they told us that they really wanted to have an organization that was driving the work of the coalition, but there that none of them really had the capacity for that. We had been having these conversations for a while and um, we were leaving a coalition meeting one day and you could tell there was this <laughs> tension in the air. We were like, okay, like, let's do this, you know, this, and if we want to do this, this really requires us to, to put our entire hearts and souls into it. And that was in 2015, I think. And so we spent the next year planning to leave our full-time paid jobs. And then in September of 2016, we started working full-time for this new organization. Um, and that's, that's what we've been doing ever since. Um, tell us a little bit about those early stages. You know, first of all, you chose a co-executive director model. And for the record, I also am a co-executive director, but each organization is different and you're on the ground floor working together. You're not working for another organization, so you have to sustain yourselves. Can you describe a little bit about what it was like in those in those early stages and, and coming up with this collaborative approach between you and your co-executive director? You know, it was really, <laughs> those, first, those early days were tough, for sure. There was a lot of, I think, uncertainty and just, you know, we were taking a huge risk um, professionally and, of course, financially. It, it was, those those early days were certainly, I'm, I'm glad they're, they're not, <laughs> I'm glad they're over in some ways. But in terms of the co-directorship, it, it wasn't really a conversation, like, where we made a choice to have a co-directorship. It kind of just happened because we were really always had been collaborating in this very shared leader in, in a sort of a shared leadership model. And there was so much to do in those early days, so much to learn, so many people we needed to meet with and, and just so much thinking we had to do that it was, we almost didn't have the time, which sounds kind of crazy, but you know, to, to really think through what the leadership model was going to look like. But I think it became clear early on that people wanted to understand it better and that it was a lot of people were concerned about it. You know, they were like, well, how does this work? You know, how can you guys just share everything? How can you share the, the leadership when nonprofits traditionally have one executive director who's, you know, the buck stops there and they're, they're making all the decisions. What became very clear to us is that there's really no other way to do it. We're not the kind of prototypical nonprofit startup founder. We were younger women of color. We were both starting families or had at the very beginning, we had, you know, um, desire to start families. We had caregiving or family responsibilities outside of starting families. So there was, there was just a lot of ways in which we couldn't perform this role in, in the way that was society expected of us. And so sharing sharing the leadership role was what made it possible for both of us to lead. And I think we see that with our, with our leaders as well, that if we can redefine what it means to be a leader so that you can kind of diffuse all of those responsibilities and share them among uh, a wider group of people, then all of a sudden leadership becomes possible for a lot more people. It makes sense, therefore, kind of that we are 
sharing leadership as co-directors to really model that that decisions aren't made by a single person, but that that everything that we're doing is kind of shared and diffused so that it becomes possible for everyone to play a really important role in building the organization. Another key focus of this podcast is to really explore how organizations can be set up in ways that are more democratic, that reflect the values that they espouse. You know, too often we see organizations that are actually you know, reflective of the of the corporations in in many ways that we are organizing against. And it sounds like you're you're seeking to put in place uh, a more democratic and inclusive structure. You know, we we as we recruited our board, we were very intentional about explaining the co-directorship to them and making sure that they they supported that. The, the structures that we are putting in place to, to create the shared leadership model are the same structures that are you would want to put in place to have a healthy workplace that's sustainable. You know, one example of that is like the fact that I had I got pregnant and I took a mater- I took a parental leave that was fairly generous and I really took it and now Carla's doing the same thing and that's pretty unusual I would say you know I think there was some concern you know when we became pregnant what what was that going to mean for the organization and so allowing for that trust and the other person that they could handle things for a while really created this culture where okay, we're going to take this leave because we believe that this is the way the workplace should look, that that people should be able to attend to a new family member, that they should be able to heal from a major medical event, that they should have time to develop themselves and to develop their relationships outside of the workplace. And so when you create that kind of expectation in the workplace, it also creates this other expectation that you are going to share the leadership that you're going to let go so I think when we promote those kinds of values that that the shared leadership follows because there's no way you can practice that and also hold on to all that power as a leader and and not and not share it with other people to, in order to make the organization function at the same time. You linked the issue of sort of a democratic healthy organization with having the people that make up the organization Uh, be healthy as well, have a healthy relationship to the work. You know, given the nature of the work that you're doing, which is very intensive, very emotional, um, how do you, or I'm assuming, I'm saying how, because I'm assuming you do, um, incorporate, and I'll be asking about sort of what trauma-informed means, because I know that that's something that is common, a term that's commonly used for the work with worker leaders, but how do you incorporate that sort of approach for yourselves and your staff in terms of creating that healthy workplace, given the emotional intensity of the work that you're doing? I mean, I think there's there's a couple of things that, that you have to do that are really hard. I think the hardest thing for us as, as people who are extremely passionate about the issue and are also just kind of driven people generally is setting limits and boundaries on what we say yes to. So that's a structural thing is that we can say, we can say, you know, go home and, you know, take your vacation and take your leave. But if we have a bunch of work that we have to do, then it's going to fall on somebody. And so it's, it's not, there's no way to really manage that except to perhaps become an organization that isn't following through on commitments that we make or isn't, isn't being efficient or, or isn't, isn't, 
producing the results that we want in our community. And so we have to really be very intentional about what we say yes to. And that is, I think, has been one of the most difficult things for us as an organization, especially as a newer organization that sees opportunities everywhere for collaboration, that sees opportunities. Maybe this will be the one, you know, maybe this will be the partnership that leads to this that leads to a funding stream that's going to sustain our work or allow us to bring on more staff. So balancing that desire for like really seeking out these exciting opportunities with the fact that that there's only so much we can do, you know, and that we have to be a little bit more incremental and accountable to each other in terms of the kind of workload that we're creating for ourselves. So I think that's been one of the the most the biggest challenges but one of the most transformative things in terms of protecting the time that we have um, outside of the workplace so that we actually have some sort of balance in addition to to that really critical process of of setting those priorities and setting those boundaries are there any practices that you've brought into the organization that promote restoration for lack of a better term any any sort of ideas that you would recommend to our listeners? We are working on it to really integrate healing spaces and practices into the work. What we've realized is that sometimes there's such a rush to get the work done because there's so much of it to do and it's so important, but there's there are issues coming up with our leaders and they need to be addressed. And so how do you create a, this complementary space to process that? So we've been experimenting with that. For example, we had our leaders work on an art exhibit over the past several months where they were developing pieces that pay tribute to their own experiences of survival, but also tied into the campaign. So it was kind of campaign work, but there was, of course, a healing element to that, to working through those stories. But then even in having the exhibit open, we, we saw that many leaders were talking about these issues with family members for the first time who were attending the exhibit, seeing their, their pieces, reading their artist statements. So we had a separate event. We had a family night where we had people bring their families into the art gallery and just shared stories, shared stories of trauma, shared stories of healing and survival. And and what was very clear from that moment was that this was something that our leaders wanted to have incorporated into the work in a sustainable way. So now we're talking about how can we create these healing spaces regularly? Um, you know, how can we make sure that we're developing opportunities for people, not just to advance campaigns or just advance the objectives that they've set together as a group for the work, but also to develop personally, to build relationships with each other, to engage in, in, in healing and restoration together. I mean, I think the main thing with staff is just taking time to celebrate, whether it's going out for lunch together to celebrate something special happening in someone's life, whether it's taking time to take a moment and just um, acknowledge the work that one another is doing. I think that's so important. And I know that when we first started out, we weren't always great about that because there was just so much work to do that it was hard to stop and take a breath and really take a moment to acknowledge the labor that had already been done and the accomplishments that had already been made. So we did try to to stop and do that, to really pay gratitude to one another for the, for the labor we were putting into the work. Well, these are all great suggestions. And frankly, people do forget they'll achieve a victory and then move on to the next, as you've said. So I think that uh, all of these ideas are, are really critically important. I also wanted to sort of go back to the, the area that you were beginning to 
explore, which is connecting the healing with the campaigns, using storytelling, using art. Your organization has become known for, quote unquote, trauma-informed approaches to organizing and to leadership development. And I, I wanted to see if you could just share a little bit more about what does that actually mean? And is there a connection between leadership development and overcoming trauma? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there's two ways of looking at it. So I think one is that trauma is a barrier, of course, to, to people engaging in leadership in the traditional ways that it's understood. And that was one of the things that one of the reasons we started a capacity building program, because we had heard from union leaders and organizers about how difficult it was for them to organize people who were in abusive relationships or who were recovering from some sort of traumatic experience, that it was hard to get them to turn out to events, that it was hard to get them to talk. It was hard to organize workplaces where there was a lot of violence because people were so fearful and, and were, were dealing with trauma. And so I think in that way, you could see trauma as a barrier um, to, to leadership development, to organizing. But I also think that in a lot of ways, trauma is challenging people to reconceptualize what it means to be a leader. And that's a lot of what our work is, is that I think in a lot of traditional organizing, you have these concepts that leaders, that they have these intrinsic qualities to them. And that doesn't really provide a lot of space for people who are most impacted by gender-based violence to to lead it. If if what it is is that how far is somebody willing to go, you know, which I think is a lot of how people talk about identifying leaders is like, is this like a ride or die person, you know, who's willing to stand up to the boss, who's willing to get arrested, who's willing to speak to the press, all of these things. Then you, you're talking about a group of people that have a lot of extremely rational reasons for not being able to or not wanting or desiring to do those things, but who still might have an extraordinary amount of leadership potential in other ways. And so I think we we try to define the qualities of a leader a little bit differently in our work, given that until we can create the conditions where a, where a, a survivor can come forward and disclose violence and not be blamed, doubted, shamed, not just by the people that they're in opposition to, whether it's an employer or somebody who's, you know, in, in a relationship with them, but also society at large. If you, if you can't create those conditions, then, you know, how can you identify them as someone who doesn't have leadership potential because they're not willing to come forward? And so we really try to identify leaders in a different way. And we look at things like their ability to be supportive to other survivors, their ability to develop a political analysis that is less individualistic, that isn't looking at gender-based violence as something that just happens. It's a matter of bad luck or even more problematically like bad choices that people are making, but that it's the product of these systems of oppression and inequality and that there is a pattern that needs to be broken, that needs to be addressed. So when, when they have this kind of political analysis, when we see them repeatedly showing up for survivors, like being a person in the community that their neighbors and friends go to because they believe they won't be judged, because they believe that this person has the capacity to support them in a meaningful way, 
then we say, okay, that's that's leadership. Showing up is leadership. And and that's, I think, a controversial viewpoint. Of course, we do incorporate healing in our work and we do incorporate space and time to address the trauma, which I think some organizing doesn't do. But it's also just about defining the objectives differently about what the development trajectory looks like in terms of leadership and what does it mean to be successful as a leader in organizing against gender-based violence. So one of the things that, uh, this will be my last question, is what it takes to sort of grow an organization. You've got the two of you from the start kind of delving in to a new organization. You've got to play all the roles, fundraising, finances, board development, you're getting exhausted just listening to uh, <laughs> to this, reminding yourself, and then getting to the point where you could finally say, yes, we can hire somebody. Can you just describe a little bit about how did you put those building blocks in place and, and knowing that you, know, you have to decide at a certain point that you've kind of got enough resources to hire somebody? Just describe a little bit about, uh, about those early days of building the organization. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the growth, it's been very incremental. You know, we had a startup budget and then every year we've gone through a budgeting process with our board and and grown the budget a little bit to um, try to address the organizational opportunities and growth in a way that was realistic in terms of our fundraising capacity. We wanted to ensure that everyone was kind of on equal footing in terms of of getting their salary, you know, of, of making sure that we weren't setting ourselves up for a, a, a cycle or a pattern that was unsustainable when we felt like we could were confident that we could pay our own our own salary that we we started to think about growing the staff our work is very un, i think unusual it doesn't fall within very obvious funding categories for different foundations the other growth category that i think it's important to think about especially for people that are doing organizing work is is making sure that you're raising the resources to fully support the leadership of workers. So that's been another area where we've had to really be very intentional, educating funders, educating our board, educating our partners. We really value the labor of the leaders that are in our work, and we are going to be fundraising to support that labor, whether it's ensuring that people don't face barrier poverty barriers to being leaders, such as being able to get to our meetings, having childcare, having language access, all of these different things that people need to participate meaningfully, as well as their actual labor. So providing them with some income replacement for doing the work, trying to help think about how we can build their skills over time so that they can not just participate in our work, but become leaders in other organizations or in their community. Um, So that's another growth strategy that we're always thinking about and trying to raise resources around as well. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's really important for for people as they're thinking about building their organizations to be remembering the role that their constituents play and what sort of support that they need in order to really fully engage in the organization. So do you have any final pointers that you would like to share that I haven't asked about? I think if listeners out there have a vision to try it and, you know, it is, it is difficult. It's really difficult, but, you know, having like, I've never regretted trying to start this organization, and there's so much to be proud of already. I don't obviously know where things are going to 
to go um, with healing to action or, or, you know, with the work that we're doing, but it's been completely worth it to me. And I definitely encourage people not to let practicalities get in the way of, of trying to really implement a vision if you have one that you're really passionate about. Well, you are truly an inspiration for me, as is your your co-director. So thank you so much for, for spending the time today and for offering your pearls of wisdom to our listeners. Thank you, Marcy. This was great. Thanks for joining us on the Be Change podcast. If you like the show, subscribe on whatever podcast player you are listening on and on our website, b-change.net. Please follow us on Facebook and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks to our producer, John Consilio, and to our partners, Somerville Community Media and Boston Free Radio. Mm-hmm.